Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Tonight on The Readout. But the American people deserve to know that President Trump, you know, asked me to put him over my oath to the Constitution, but I kept my oath and I always will. One of the many times former former Vice President Mike Pence talked about keeping his oath, something that three former Republican governors say Donald Trump failed to do on January 6th, rendering him ineligible to run again. One of those governors joins me tonight. Also tonight, lacking the slightest evidence of a crime or misdemeanor, House Republicans move forward with plans to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, while simultaneously obstructing efforts to address the border issue. Plus, Congresswoman Cori Bush joins me on the DOJ investigation of her and her reaction to the Republican congressman who called her husband a thug and said that Bush is loud and needs to tone it down. But we begin tonight just one week until the Supreme Court hears oral arguments in the most consequential case involving Donald Trump. Whether he can be barred from the ballot by the 14th Amendment for inciting the January 6th insurrection. Today, Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold filed a brief urging the court to affirm the Colorado Supreme Court decision barring Trump. Griswold joins a long and growing list of figures who have flooded the high court with their views. From the Colorado voters who sued to block him to historians and this week, perhaps the most high profile legal conservative offered his position. Retired federal judge Michael Ludig wrote, Mr. Trump incited and therefore engaged in an armed insurrection against the Constitution's express and foundational mandates that require the peaceful transfer of executive power to a newly elected president. In doing so, Mr. Trump disqualified himself under Section 3. Ludig added, every provision of the Constitution is part of the supreme law of the land, not the inferior law of the land. That line should serve as a reminder to Trump's MAGA enablers in Congress who are engaging in performative actions for his benefit and submitting to Trump's whims, no matter how ludicrous or contrary to what used to be bedrock grand old party values, including, as the Washington Post's Aaron Blake notes, Republicans' acrimonious divorce from the rule of law in determining that they can apparently just ignore the Supreme Court. Because that's exactly what they're doing, dutifully going along with Trump's demand to foment another civil war by urging states to send National Guard soldiers to Texas, while that state simply ignores a Supreme Court ruling that the Biden administration can remove Texas razor wire on the southern border and federal agents can intervene to prevent migrants from drowning. Texas Congressman Chip Roy told Fox last week, channeling the old Dixiecrat South's massive resistance against Supreme Court-ordered desegregation, quote, you tell the court to go to hell, you defend yourself, and then figure it out later. It is a remarkable turnabout. Today's MAGA Republican Party has moved so far from its supposed law and order positions that congressional Republicans don't even care 
that Donald Trump, their forever president, endangered their own lives on January 6th. Nearly 200 of them have asked the high court to keep Trump on the ballot, denying in a brief filed with the court that the January 6th coup attempt was an insurrection at all. But three former Republican elected officials stand out in a party that is otherwise completely submissive to Trump, joining the ranks of those arguing to the Supreme Court that he is disqualified to appear on the ballot because he engaged in insurrection. They are former Massachusetts Governor William Weld, former New Jersey Governor Christine Todd Whitman, and former Montana Governor Mark Roscoe. Weld briefly opposed Trump for the Republican nomination in 2020, while Whitman has criticized the party as being replaced by the cult of Donald Trump. Governor Roscoe's past as head of the Republican National Committee gives him a special insight into the mindset of his party, although their brief makes clear their positions are not about politics. The filing notes that the three governors have been members of the Republican Party for decades. Their objectives in filing this brief are not partisan, but purely patriotic, motivated by their commitment to public service. The governors argue, should Mr. Trump be permitted to stand again for election to the presidency, despite his past actions, neither Section 3 of the 14th Amendment nor the oaths that undergird the bedrock premise that public officials serve to advance the welfare of the people and our common national project will ever be the same. They will have been rendered meaningless in their legal force and stripped of their moral authority and power. They will, in effect, have been written out of our Constitution. And former Governor Mark Roscoe joins me now on the phone. We had a little bit of camera trouble. So thank you for joining us on the phone, Governor. Um, I just want to know, just so that people sort of understand where you all come from, all three of you, uh, Governor Whitman, uh, as well as yourself, as well as uh, Governor Weld, former Governor Weld, come from states that have turned power over from one party to the other. Over the years, in 1989, a Democrat governed your state of Montana, then in 93, a Republican, you then as a Republican, and then another Republican, and then a Democrat. So the, the peaceful transfer of power is something you have all engaged in yourselves, at least your parties have. Tell me why you felt compelled to weigh in on this Supreme Court case against Donald Trump, or a Supreme Court case involving Donald Trump. Well, because it's a serious violation of the Constitution to ignore it. And the fact of the matter is that nobody has a right to run for office. We certainly have a right to vote if we qualify and haven't um, disabled ourselves from being able to vote. But we don't have a right to run. In order to run, the person that is the candidate has to prove that, in fact, they can meet the qualifications. So you don't get access to the ballot unless you meet the qualifications. The qualifications have been there uh, from the beginning of the Constitution 235 years ago. Uh, you have to be more than 30, you have to be 35 years of age, you have to be native born, and you have to have been a resident of the country for the last 14 years. And then there is a fourth requirement that you have to meet in order to be eligible. And that is, you cannot have taken an oath to support the Constitution of the United States and thereafter involve, engage, countenance, incite, or in any other way be involved with an insurrection against um, the United States of America and against the Constitution. So simply, as you said in your introduction, it cannot be ignored. It can't be waived. It's not an option. This is something that is mandatory. And the burden is on Mr. Trump to prove that, in fact, he meets the qualifications. 
And there is evidence from two courts, a district court in Colorado and the United States Supreme Court, plus the Secretary of State in the state of Maine, that have all held after a due process hearing that, in fact, Mr. Trump was involved in an insurrection. And as a consequence, he is therefore ineligible to run for president. So we want to see faith um, be paid to the Constitution. That's the bottom line. And I'm holding your, your brief here, uh, read through it, and it, it is fascinating. It, it hinges a lot. I urge everyone to read it. It's just 35 pages, a quick read uh, for those of you who are interested in doing a little legal reading. Uh, it, it hinges a lot on this question of the oath of office, which all the three of you took as governors, which members of Congress take, that it is not trivial, that it is, in fact, sacred, and that it is a bedrock upon which our government is built. I want to quote one little part of this, of this uh, brief that you all submitted. The 14th Amendment's prescription makes sense. After all, for a democratic republic to survive, such treason or treachery as insurrection, once employed, cannot be ignored or forgotten, lest the perpetrator seize the moment once again to betray the people and our Constitution. Your brief also makes the, I think, very salient point that if Donald Trump is allowed to take the very same oath again, having violated it previously, the oath would be meaningless, but also his power would be unlimited. If you would please elaborate on that. Well, he's in, in fact promised that he has um, talked about terminating the Constitution as if he had the authority to do it. He's, but, but obviously, he's more than willing to live outside the boundaries of the Constitution. Um, he has talked about um, taking um, revenge on people that have opposed him, um, setting the Department of Justice in a position to pursue people unnecessarily, but at his direction. Um, he has talked about um the execution of the army chief of staff. And as a consequence of that, um, he's promised to do these things. We should probably take him at his word that, in fact, if he is once again to enter into the White House, he will once again violate the oath. But the, the bedrock principle here is the Constitution is to be observed. And we believe that it, in this case, if it's observed, that Donald Trump will not be qualified to run for the office of president again. Uh, stay with me, Governor. I want to bring in former Senator and MSNBC political analyst Claire McCaskill. And Claire, you have the benefit of also having taken that oath as a United States senator. You've also been a prosecutor. I want to get your, your take on that as well. This brief really does lean heavily on the oath. It, it speaks about it more than anything else. And, then, and, and the oath itself, it doesn't lean so much on the act of insurrection, but on the fact that Donald Trump did, in fact, pledge uh, to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States and being the most sort of singular officer in the American government government failed to do so and thus cannot run. What do you make of that argument about the sacredness of the oath? I think it's something that we've overlooked too often, frankly, in covering Donald Trump and most importantly, covering his enablers, those elected members of Congress who took that oath that I took, that anyone who holds public office takes in this country. You know, if you look at the Constitution, they are, I remember, Joy, when every Republican you'd meet would have a pocket constitution in their suit yes. pocket, and they would have a tendency, whenever they disagreed with you, to pull it out and wave it around. I haven't seen the constitution in a suit pocket in the Republican Party for a long time. Look at the list. They're abusing impeachment. They know that Mayorkas has done nothing to be impeached. They know that. This is a political stunt. Look at 
ignoring the Supreme Court. They understand checks and balances is laid out in the Constitution. They understand what they're doing is violating the Constitution. The peaceful transfer of power and encouraging an insurrection, they know that's not allowed under the United States Constitution. So what exactly are they loyal to at this point? It certainly is not the Constitution. I want to ask you, Governor, on those very two points. I'm going to hit both of those two with you, um, sir. Uh, The first is that Republicans have now said that when it comes to the border, they actually it's okay to ignore the United States Supreme Court. What do you make of that? Well, that's suggesting the obligation of the Constitution. It's suggesting the end of the republic. And um, as a we we enter into a social contract, Joy, all of us as citizens um, and our servants, our public servants do the same thing. And that social contract says, I'm taking this oath and pledging and promising you that I will enforce the Constitution. I will respect it and I will make certain that it's preserved and protected. And that doesn't um, that clearly states what the intentions are. It's a contract. And so if you engage in conduct that undermines the public good, undermines the Constitution, undermines civility and our our civil society, ultimately threatening the abrogation of the Constitution, our way of life and our union can't survive. And and first to you and then to Claire, Matt, uh, Congressman Matt Gates of Florida, uh, he is circulating a resolution um, to to his fellow members of the Republican caucus in the United States House, which would declare that Donald Trump did not, in fact, engage in insurrection or rebellion against the United States or give aid and comfort to the enemies thereof. And Politico obtained the draft of that. What do you make of members of the actual body that were whose lives were threatened, actually, by the insurrectionists in uh, circulating that, obviously, to try to help Donald Trump's legal case? Well, I think they're deluded. And the, the fact of the matter is that, that it's patent nonsense. They have no capacity or capability to influence this particular decision. And the and entry of Congress, the effort to try with all of these people that have signed on requiring in their brief that somehow Congress be involved in this process is not even closely, not not even remotely um, contemplated by the Constitution. So it's piffle, it's uh, patent nonsense, and it's just um, simply once again, a focus upon issues that are completely irrelevant and have no bearing on what it is that we're talking about. It's actually part of the atmosphere, part of the context we're dealing with in this country. And if we don't um, regroup and bring back some sanity to how it is that we conduct our public affairs, then we're not long for this uh, this world with a constitutional democracy and republic that's been alive and functioning longer than any in the history of humankind for the last 235 years. Uh, I have an additional question for Claire, but I'm going to kick it to the other side of the break because we are uh, short on time. Uh, Former Montana Governor Mark Roscoe, uh, it's very good of you to join us. Thank you very, very much. Uh, And up next on the readout, thank you, sir. Uh, Up next on the readout, as Republicans move to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas, we we have to ask, are they really that terrified of immigrants? Or is it all just pointless performance art in an election year? The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. 
And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. I am here this morning to beg of my colleagues to help us force the administration to take action. We have to stop this now. Where in the world is Secretary Mayorkas on all of this? Well, I don't know. Maybe Speaker Mike Johnson has been too busy chatting with the former president about the campaign to notice, but President Biden has agreed to do something about the border. He had his DHS secretary negotiate with a bipartisan group of senators a deal that would shut down the border, expedite asylum requests, and change the way the president can grant parole. All huge concessions to what normally would be Republican priorities. But here's the thing. Speaker Johnson's sugar daddy, Donald Trump, has made clear that he doesn't want Johnson to lift a finger to help Biden and by extension, the American people, because that wouldn't help Trump get back into the White House. Just yesterday, Trump used his knockoff Twitter to scream about closing the border and telling Republicans you don't need a ridiculous bill. Just stop for a second and acknowledge the absurdity of that statement. It is literally the primary responsibility of Congress to come up with bills to deal with these issues, which they have refused to do since ALF was on TV and Reagan was president. We're still waiting on the final draft of the compromise Israel-Ukraine border bill, but we are no longer waiting to see what House Republicans are going to do with DHS DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Early this morning, the House Homeland Committee voted along party lines to move forward with his impeachment. Shortly before the vote, Democrats tried to attach amendments to the resolution, which stated the obvious. Later this year, United States voters will choose a president for the next four years. The presumptive Republican nominee, Donald Trump, is a narcissistic, hateful liar who was found by a court of law to have raped and defamed at least one woman. He is currently facing 91 criminal charges for a wide variety of alleged offenses, including a felony conspiracy to defraud the United States. He was twice impeached by the House of Representatives, including for inciting a violent insurrection. He is currently working to prevent discord and perhaps a civil war, encouraging Republican governors to order National Guardsmen to take up arms against the federal government. Secretary Mayorkas responded to the move toward impeachment with a fiery letter in which he wrote, quote, we need a legislative solution and only Congress can provide it. I assure you that your false accusations do not rattle me and do not divert me from the law enforcement and broader public service mission to which I've devoted most of my career and to which I remain devoted. Back with me, former Senator Claire McCaskill. And joining me right here at the table is Maria Teresa Kumar, president and CEO of Voto Latino and an MSNBC contributor. I will start with you, MTK. Um, Let me play the boss. Donald Trump, their boss, Um, because this is what he used to say about how immigration should be fixed. The only long term solution to the crisis and the only way to ensure the endurance of our nation as a sovereign country is for Congress to overcome open borders obstruction. Most importantly, Democrats must change our immigration laws right now, right now. We can do it in, I used to say 45 minutes, we could do it in 15 minutes. We can solve the problem if they would change some of the rules and regulations, change asylum, 
uh, change uh, so many different things. What happened? <laughs> they might be saying the same thing. And I think, this, first of all, I think what we need to level set, Joy, because what is happening at the border is absolutely complex. And right now, with some of the negotiations you're hearing, is like there are countries right now that are receiving and absorbing a lot of these immigrants themselves. Colombia, for example, has absorbed close to 3 million Venezuelans. Wow. What have they done? They haven't put them on their backs. What they've done is given them people working papers, right. allow their kids to go to school, and try to actually create assimilation, ensuring that people can stay there. So why on the table, is it not this opportunity for us to work with other countries yeah. and say, how do we make sure that people don't have to make this dangerous journey? Sure. The moment that someone gets to our border, it's broken. That's not immigration policy. And I think the president would be well served to have that conversation with the American people. Because one of the reasons we're in this mess, it's been 45 years of neglect yeah. when it comes to Latin America. We can't remember the last time, with the exception of NAFTA, that we actually did a real trade agreement that we actually invested. Imagine if you've had a half a million, $500 million to do exactly so that. So that people could stay in their country. And they, and they want to and stay in their, in their countries. Their yeah. countries. But what Trump is trying to do is he's a one-trick pony. He's like, you know, this idea of trying to demonize all immigrants, that got me to the White House last time. Let yeah. me see if I could do it again. And what, Mayor, what Secretary Mayorkas right now is trying to do is he's trying to prevent further dehumanization of immigrants. Our biggest challenge, I will tell you, running but old, you know, we're not always on the same side of the of the administration on how they sure. are handling the border. But we are clear, there are no high crimes and misdemeanors when it right. comes to Mayorkas. The high crimes may be coming from Congress, from these individuals that actually supported an insurrection and refused to recuse themselves yeah. when it came to actually telling Donald Trump to take a hike. You know, Claire, you know, Texas Republican Troy Nails, uh, you know, I don't really make everybody listen to his voice, but he, he said, why would I help Joe Biden with his dismal 33 percent when he, when he can fix border security on his own? He's basically made it clear we're not going to pass anything at all. I am old enough to remember the Gang of Eight process uh, in which Four Republicans and four Democrats, including Lindsey Graham and the late John McCain, got together and tried to do immigration reform. And then Rubio got screamed at by the previous Donald Trump, Rush Limbaugh, and suddenly that went away. Is this just literally all about Donald Trump playing the role of Rush Limbaugh in the current cycle and saying you can't do it because I just it won't help me? Yeah, I was a member of the Senate when we passed uh, a, a comprehensive bill that did a lot of the things that are still unattended to. And it was bipartisan. I think there was over, I know there were over 60 votes for it. Um, and a lot of Republicans, uh, including the ones you named. So he, here's the thing we have to be honest about. The Republicans don't have very many issues to run on. They certainly can't run on freedom with what happened with Dobbs. They can't run on it's okay to slaughter children in classrooms with weapons of war. Uh, they can't run on we want to make sure you can vote. They really don't have any issues to run on. They can't run on the, the economy sucks because yeah. the economy is doing really well. The only issue that polls well for them with the majority of Americans, and partially it's because what she just said, Americans haven't been talked to about this issue in a comprehensive way, because it is complex. But most Americans think we have a real problem at the border. And so they're going to take this issue. They don't want to solve it. They know that Mallorca has done nothing that warrants impeachment. This is just a way they can have a show trial yeah. to try to make this issue the only issue that Americans are thinking about come November. Yeah. I don't think it'll work, but that's their plan.
Right. I mean, and, 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 and put the brown guy on trial. Right. It's, right. it's so much easier than actually trying to solve the problem. And Quinnipiac did a poll and they asked, what's the most urgent issue facing the country today? Twenty four percent of quarters said preserving democracy, which tells you a lot about where we are. Mm-hmm. The economy at 20. Immigration is at 20. It's above abortion. Abortion was only at five. I mean, literally gun violence is just ahead of it. People are focused on immigration because they're focusing on them on it. Right. Well, and here's the thing is that when we were talking about the gang of eight, that immigration policy was not about closing borders. Right. That was about what do we do with the essential worker, with the DACA recipient, with the temporary person that has been here for 20, 30 years. They have all been dropped off and no one talks about them. But you know who cares about them? The 163,000 Latino youth that are about to turn 18 in Arizona because they have a loved one. If the Democrats want to get smart about immigration, they have to recognize that, yes, there is a crisis happening at the border. That is an international issue. We have to bring Western Hemisphere partners. But they also have to start and acknowledge that the reason that so many young Latinos got into the game and started voting was because Sheriff Arpaio politicized them. They're wanting to vote to protect their family members, and it would serve the president well to address them. What do you make of the fact? that President Biden's approach has been all about security and, you know, he's really picked up the Republican, the yes. things that Republicans want, which is all about security, not about the things you're talking about, not about comprehensive immigration. Well, we already know what happened when President Obama tried, that. tried to negotiate with Republicans when they had no intention of actually trying to solve the issue. This is happening again. It's Groundhog Day all over again. Yeah. But what is a winning issue? If you talk to modern independent Republicans about safeguarding the person that is the essential worker, their buddy that they've worked with for the last 20 years, they say, you better believe he did, that person deserves a pathway to citizenship. You better believe they deserve to come out of the shadows. These are individuals that are paying billions of dollars in taxes. They are good citizens. They believe themselves to be able to demonstrate that in America, you could actually become self-realized. The folks are starting to question if that's true. Yeah. The kid who can vote. Yeah. And, you know, Claire, if you put up on the screen, just the states that have the most like immigration court cases, the states where the crisis is the most acute in terms of just the backlog, it's Florida, right? Florida is way out there ahead. It's Texas. California is just such a big state. New York, Illinois, you just go through all of these states, some swing states, a lot of them not. Georgia, a very important state, Tennessee. So you can see kind of where the issue is urgent. But Republicans have managed to get people in Idaho to talk about it. They've managed to get people in Wyoming to talk about it. They've managed to get people in states that are have no real issue on at hand to talk about it. They've really focused their voters on it. Is that anything other than, I don't know, I, I guess you can call it anything other than racial demog- you know, demagoguing? Because in some cases, the people talking about it aren't really actually experiencing it, even in their states. Well, they're certainly comfortable with racial demagogy. And some of them, I mean, uh, Congresswoman Beetlejuice out in Colorado actually tried to say, talked about Colorado's southern border. Well, I got news for her. Her southern border is not the border. Um, So here's the other thing I think we need to remind people about. If Donald Trump is so effective, why didn't he get any immigration reform done when he had the House and the Senate, and he was sitting in the Oval Office. I'll tell you why. Because what he wanted to do, the majority of Republicans didn't want to do. Uh, you should have heard the whispering on the Senate floor. Uh, you know, they didn't want a wall. They didn't want to pay for a wall. They knew that wasn't the way. So it, Donald Trump couldn't get his own party to change the immigration policy in this country. How in the world does he think he's going to do that with Speaker Hakeem Jeffries? I think that needs to be snipped, clipped, and shared. Everybody <laughs> needs to, because Trump, people always say that those who say they like Trump, they say they like him because he kept his promises. He didn't do a wall. 
And he had all three. He had the House, the Senate and the White House. Did he pass an immigration bill? Did he shut the border down? Did he stop all migrants? No. He took a lot of kids from their parents when they were breastfeeding. But he sure did not solve the problem. Mm-hmm. It's important to notice. Promise not kept. Claire McCaskill, Maria, Maria Teresa Kumar. Thank you both very much. Coming up, we are awaiting some key decisions on Trump's legal cases. And awaiting. And awaiting. And awaiting. Shake a leg, folks. We got elections to hold. We'll be right back. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Hi everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. any moment, Donald Trump could receive word on two rulings with profound implications for his financial, business, legal, and political future. Judge Arthur Ngoron was efforting to release his decision in Trump's New York civil fraud trial by today, which could result in a $370 million fine for Trump and a ban on doing business in New York. It has also been just over three weeks since a D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals heard arguments over Trump's claim of having absolute immunity from criminal prosecution in his federal election interference case. It's been more than 50 days since the proceedings in that case have been put on hold. And with each passing day, it gives Trump the delay he wants to try and keep the case from reaching trial before November's election. Remember, prospective jurors were supposed to appear next week to fill out a written questionnaire for use in the jury selection process for the March 4th trial date. That, of course, is now on hold. Joining me now is Melissa Murray, professor of law at New York University and MSNBC legal analyst. And Melissa, all of these cases are important, but I kind of feel like the American people should know if they're going to elect the guy who says he can use SEAL Team 6 to kill his political opponents. I feel like that's kind of like a baseline question that we, that we kind of need answered. Why do well, you think? Certainly- you go ahead. Well, it was... It was certainly the most provocative question at that oral argument and one that really elicited an eyebrow raising answer when Donald Trump's lawyer said it was a qualified yes, he could do that, which was essentially an admission that this president, at least in his view, is above the law for really egregious acts. And so I'm surprised that it's been almost more than 20 days since the D.C. Circuit heard oral argument in that case, and we still haven't gotten a ruling. Every day that goes by is a day that we get further and further away from that stated March 4th trial start date that Judge Chuck can put in place. She has already indicated that she is likely to push that date out further. But every day that goes by and the farther we get from that date is basically a win for Donald Trump, who... It's not necessarily just on the art of the deal, but is really practicing the art of delay. 
Let me read you what Politico wrote. Um, Even if the appeal were resolved next week against Trump, that calculation would put his earliest trial date in late April. But if the D.C. Circuit and the Supreme Court take additional weeks or months to deliver a final ruling, the opening days of Trump's trial could be pushed to the summer or fall. Or if the Supreme Court agrees to hear Trump's bid for immunity but won't take up his appeal on an emergency basis, the trial could remain on hold until after the election. And if Trump wins, he would be virtually certain to shut down the case. Let me just put up the legal calendar, the political calendar, kind of together. We're talking about these trials that are supposed to be happening in uh, in July, that's when the Republican National Convention is. November 5th is Election Day. We literally could go into knowing who that Trump is the nominee, but not knowing whether he has the immunity, complete immunity to kill whoever he wants using the military and go into Election Day not knowing the same thing. Is this something that these appeals court judges, in your view, take into account? I think everyone has to be taking into account what this calendar looks like and the really, really important substantive issues that are on the table here. The best that I can guess from what is going on and just sort of the work that I have done in appellate courts is that there is likely two judges, probably three, who agree that there is no such thing as qualified or as absolute immunity in this case. And they're really sort of wrestling with how far to go. It could be the case, um, the judge that seemed most skeptical of the idea that Donald Trump was not immune from prosecution was Judge Henderson, who's a senior member of that panel. And if she is in the majority, which is she agrees with the judgment of her colleagues and they're all there together and there's a majority for it, she gets to assign the opinion. And so it may be that she's taking her time writing this and they're trying to sort of work out the details, or it could be that she's not in the majority and she is writing in a dissent. And if that dissent is something that she spends a fair amount of time on and they go back and forth between the majority and the dissent, that's going to take a lot of time. But again, any time taken, any delay here is a win for Donald Trump. You know, there is a a sense I think a lot of people have that the judge in the documents case, because we also probably should know if the person that, you know, people are considering electing president was stealing classified documents and disclosing them to people who didn't have authorized. That's probably something people might want to maybe know. She it feels like she is slow walking that case. You know, Jack Smith is you know met met in a skiff about questions of whether Donald Trump's uh, attorneys can get to look at some classified documents in that skiff and see them, which seems bananas to me that they would ever let him see him again. But is there a sense of the lack of urgency generally in the appellate divisions and in the appellate world, it is alarming to me. And I wonder if it is alarming to you. Well, I think it is alarming. I mean, there's a lot that might go to explaining it. Um, I, I think that of the cases, the one concerning the classified documents is the one where the prosecution probably has the lightest lift to establish guilt because basically he had the documents. He did not turn them over. There it is. But it's also the most complicated in terms of evidence because so much of the evidence in this case is going to be classified and there's all kinds of procedures and protocols for dealing with it, as you just suggested. And the defendant has certain rights here. He has to be able to see the evidence against him. Should that evidence be shown to him in a skiff where it's protected or can it be out in the open? What sorts of protocols will we take to ensure that it's not further disseminated as and, and is insecure as it was at Mar-a-Lago? All of those are real questions. And they're before a judge who is a Trump appointee. And that's not really the issue. The fact is that she's not a very experienced judge. She's only been on the bench for a limited amount of time. And she hasn't had a lot of criminal trials and certainly not a trial like this where there are really complicated evidentiary issues. Yeah. Uh, uh, what a world. Uh, Melissa Murray, always appreciate you. Thank you. And still ahead, thank you. a Republican, thank you, a Republican congressman reacts to the DOJ investigation of Cori Bush, saying she is so loud and that her husband is a thug. 
We'll hear what she has to say about that when she joins me after a quick break. Stay with us. On Tuesday, Congresswoman Cori Bush of Missouri confirmed that the Department of Justice is investigating her campaign's spending on security services. I have endured relentless threats to my physical safety and life. As a rank and file member of Congress, I am not entitled to personal protection by the House and instead have used campaign funds as permissible to retain security services. I have not used any federal tax dollars for personal security services. Any reporting that I have used funds for personal security, for personal security is simply false. Representative Bush acknowledged that she retained her husband as part of her security team, saying he has had extensive experience in this area and is able to provide the necessary services at or below a fair market rate. She also accused right-wing opponents of lodging baseless complaints against her and noted that the Independent Office of Congressional Ethics had investigated the matter and unanimously voted to dismiss it. Joining me now is Congresswoman Cori Bush of Missouri. Thank you so much for being here, Congresswoman. Let's talk about this for just a moment. Um, I, I want to start with the fact that the congressional, the, the independent congressional ethics office cleared this matter. How did it then proceed to a an investigation by the DOJ? So what happened was um, there is someone who uh, made a complaint. They sent the complaint, um, I believe it was to the FEC, um, which that moves really slowly um, is what I hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because uh you know, nothing had happened. They didn't see any movement. Right. They decided, um, and there are articles about it. They decided, well, hey, I want the DOJ. I want House Ethics. You know, I want all of these different entities to um, to investigate now. So they did it at one time. Just okay. asked all of these different, you know, uh, if different entities to investigate. So these agencies are obliging they, a complaint. A, a, yes. yes. Let, let's talk about your husband. Your husband, uh, his name is Courtney Merritt. Yes. Um, he's a, a military veteran. You know, he's yes. a military veteran. Um, why was he the choice that you made in terms of of your personal security. So what was happening, um, there were a lot of issues with us retaining uh, just good good staff. Mm-hmm. What was happening, we had, um, you know, we couldn't pay the uh, the big costs for security like right. some of my colleagues are able to do. Yeah. Um, and so we, we went with what we could afford. Um, it worked out for a while, but then we started having call-offs, um, you know, uh, people just uh, just not showing up to work, people sleeping on the job. Yeah. Um, and so it was very hard for me to have security when it was unreliable. And so what was happening was uh, Courtney would fill in, he would volunteer. And mm-hmm. sometimes he would even, you know, even when he was there and they were working, he would say, hey, you should be standing over here. Right. Hey, you should be doing that. And so he was volunteering a lot of his time. Mm-hmm. And then we had someone who was kind of leading the group, mm-hmm. uh, leading the team who, uh, couldn't could no longer do it. One day just called and said, I won't be back for three months. Right. It left me in a position. There was no way I could manage a security team plus right. the work that I was doing. And so he was able to pick up that slack. And uh, and not only was he able to pick it up, he could handle all of it. I mean, he was an air assault soldier in the 101st yeah. um, uh, Airborne. He had already worked for other um, other companies working security, mm-hmm. even as a supervisor. So this was in his this was in his in lane. His house. And, yes. it's, and obviously he's somebody you trust. I mean, you're you're someone who has had a lot of threats. Obviously, yes. you're a very high profile Black Lives Matter activist turned Congresswoman, talk about some of the sort of atmospherics around you. Yeah. So prior to me entering Congress, I had had, you know, a lot of threats on my life. I had even had times where um, I was there were actual 
you know, attempts made. Yeah. Um, and I went uh, to social media to talk about them because I didn't feel safe going anywhere else. So I would talk about what was happening to me on social media, sure. even turned it into the FBI um, at one point, just making it documented that there are actual, you know, threats on my life, um, attempts on my life. But even before I entered Congress, during orientation, I went to the house and talked about like, hey, this is what I'm experiencing now. Yeah. Um, is there a way for you all to keep me safe in Congress? And there are some members of Congress who are independently wealthy. Are you one of them? No, I am okay. not. And that is the reason that you're you're trying to figure out a way to pay for it. I, yes. I, I, I do want to play for you, and I apologize for making you have to listen to it. I'm sure you've listened to it before because I know you responded on social media to it. Uh, this is uh, Congressman Troy Nails of Texas. This is what he had to say about this situation and you. Take a listen. She doesn't even support the police, but the idea to pay her thug uh, money to try to help protect her, this and that, for what? Maybe if she wouldn't be so loud all the time, maybe she wouldn't be getting threats. Are you saying she deserves to be threatened? No, what I'm saying is, is that when you're out there talking the way she does, I, I'm surprised that people are probably pretty upset because she's a pretty radical. She's pretty radical. And maybe she should tone it down a little bit. I'll just let you respond absolutely ignorant, anti-black, racist, and sexist tropes um, by a sitting member of Congress who was a colleague. I have never even met this person. You know, I've never even talked to him. Uh, and for him to spew something so disgusting, number one, to call my husband my thug, you know, what, what qualifies him as a thug? What what does he know about him to, to call him a thug? You know, that is ab that that is a, a, a dog whistle. And then also um, to tell me that, you know, I'm being too loud. Me advocating for St. Louis is I'm being too loud. How about if you would have fixed the issues that St. Lewis has. I wouldn't have to talk about it. I wouldn't have to fuss about it. But yes, I'm going to be loud. And that's OK. If I want to be loud, if I want to be quiet, that's my prerogative. He has he you know, him putting his mouth on it just shows his, uh, uh, you know. Racism at its best. Let me let me also ask you, because this is one of the issues and we've talked about this uh, on the show before. There is a bit of a campaign against members of we call it the squad. But this mm -hmm. is like the young progressives uh, in Congress, a guy named Reed Hoffman. He is the co-founder of LinkedIn. For those of you who don't know who he is, uh, he is a supporter of President Biden. Um, but he recently gave two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to a super PAC that's supporting Nikki Haley. And he's reportedly behind a primary campaign to oust Rashida Tlaib. Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and you. Um, your thoughts on this, because it does seem that the person who is running against you, um, he's, he's prosecuting attorney Wesley Bell. He has the opposite position uh, as you do on Israel and Gaza. You've been very vocal about the Gaza issue. That has drawn a lot of attention, negative attention to you. And it seems now some pretty well-funded opposition. What do you make of this sort of campaign against not just you, but other progressives? Well, we're not afraid of, you know, the opposition that that that, you know, will pop up its head because we made uh, principled policy stances. We are here to do what's right, what's necessary, not what's easy. You know, we're not here to appease, you know, big dollar donors. We're here to do what the people sent us here to do. And so um, I fought this before I've had. Uh, I, so I've had this same principle stance for years. Mm -hmm. So I won on it in 2020. Yeah. I won again in 2022. The thing is this free Palestine. The thing is, you know, we need a ceasefire now and that's not going to change. And the thing is, most Democrats believe the same thing, that there needs to be a ceasefire. Very quickly, we are we are out of time. The House Minority Leader did endorse Summer Lee, who's also facing a primary challenge on the same basis. Has he endorsed you? 
Well, we haven't asked for the endorsement yet. Okay. We're still, you know, we're still working on that. I'm, my race is in yeah. August. Hers is a lot earlier than yeah. mine. Okay. Yes. Uh, Congressman, Congresswoman Cori Bush, thank you very much. Thank we really you. appreciate you being here. Stay safe. Uh, and thank we'll you. be right back. We don't seek a war with Iran. We're not looking for a broader conflict. We're not looking for a war with Iran. The president believes that it is important to respond in an appropriate way uh, now that three American soldiers have been killed. We will respond in, in a time and in a manner of our choosing on our schedule. That was National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby on the news that President Biden has decided on a response to the deaths of three U.S. soldiers in Jordan last weekend. Kirby attributed that attack today to the Islamic resistance in Iraq, an Iranian-backed group. NBC News reports that while the administration has not yet finalized its targets for retaliatory strikes, officials are describing this as a campaign that could last weeks. The response is expected to include Iranian targets outside of Iran and will include both kinetic strikes and cyber operations in multiple countries and locations. Iran has threatened to decisively respond to any U.S. attack on the country or its interests. A harrowing situation we'll certainly be keeping an eye on right here. And that is the readout for tonight. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. 